Happy New Year, and welcome to all you weirdos, Rakoans, and secret clones of Nathaniel Essex. It is time for another Weird Dose of X, an X-Men podcast and part of the Weird Science family. Speaking to me from a hand-dug irrigation canal in the middle of a Savage Land drug farm, but don't worry, it's the good kind, is our pal Ruben. Hey Ruben, how the hell are you? Good. Hey, I'm giving the drugs away for free. That's what I hear, at least in, in some books. Well, maybe maybe a little inconsistent, but, you know, <laughs> that's your prerogative. It's, it's your irrigation canal. You can do what you want. That's what I always say. Yep. So it is the start of a, a brand new year. We, we took a, a little week off because we needed a break, and also the books were a little in that week. So instead of uh, having cranky podcasters podcast crankily, we thought we'd we just take the week off, but we are back, as they say, tanned, rested, and ready. Well, I think we're both kind of in the northern part of the country, so tanned, maybe not so much. But uh, it is the new year, and I thought we would start off by saying, do we have any like, podcaster New Year's resolutions? Because that's not hacky or cliched at all. So, so Ruben, how about you? Do you have any podcaster New Year's resolutions? Yeah, I wish I could be funny, but I'm just going to be literal. Okay. So. My my commitment to the listening community is to actually write the names of all the characters down <laughs> for every issue before we have uh, a recording because I listen to some of my old recordings and I'm like, man, <laughs> I'm sure people love listening to me like, what's that guy's name? The one with the red suit, right? So no, this time I'm going to actually list all the okay. characters out. That sounds speak, good. Speak with, with intelligence. I have the hardest time, especially with manga, where, you know, they're mostly, you know, it's all in black and white. And then also, I don't have the cultural knowledge to tell things apart in the way that a native Japanese mm -hmm. speaker, Japanese cultural person would be able to tell things apart. So yeah, yeah it's, it's much worse for me in manga, but that's a good thing. So my New Year's resolution has to do with uh, something that was posted in our Weird Science Slack a couple of weeks ago. I think uh, uh, Gabe Hernandez posted it. And by the way, good morning, Gabe. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to see, and it was a uh, a tweet from a Marvel artist, Sean Isaacs, I think his name is pronounced, and he was complaining on Twitter about comic book reviewers. Okay, so got my attention. Uh, he mm -hmm. said that comic book reviewers tend to go on and on about all these things that a writer does, but barely ever mentions anything about the art and the colors on the rest of the team. Yeah. And, you know, he's not really wrong, right? We Like you and I, we're going to talk again, even in this podcast, we're going to spend many more words talking about writer stuff than about art stuff. It's just, it's a couple reasons. One, number one, it's just easier to talk about, right? I can talk about plot twists and connections to prior story arcs and speculate on what might happen next. That's, that's all writer stuff. That's all pretty easy. That's like, it's easy to say words about a word kind of a thing. But trying to describe like what I think about the shape of lines and colors on paper or on a screen, that's just a lot harder. And there's this old saying that's been attributed to, I don't know, everybody. So I don't know who really said it first, but they say that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And I, I think that writing or talking about visual art is kind of similar. So I'm going to give it a shot, Mr. Isaacs. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try to spend more time talking about the art, and I'm going to you know list off more of the creative team and give them the credit they deserve. But I'm also going to ask any artist, and I'm, I'm sure Mr. Isaacs is, is part of our listening audience, I'm going to ask him to also give us a little bit of a break that, you know, the kind of things to talk about. It's hard to talk about what, what you guys do. It's really important. It's amazing. It's valuable. And it's why we love comic books and why we're not just reading, you know, really short prose stories. Uh, we know you guys are important. It, it's just hard to talk about. So we're going to try. 
And I guess sometimes it is easy to talk about, but that's usually like when it sucks, right? It's easy to say, hey, look yeah. at this goofy crap, that stupid face on page 17B. So I'm going to try to point out the great stuff in the art and the comic books, and we'll see how long I can do that, but that's the idea. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm going to be critical of that perspective and say, you know, I appreciate the artists and think that they are amazing people. And in a prior life, I wanted to be a comic artist. So I love comic artists. But at the same time, you know, I can read poorly drawn stories with great, you know, great actual plots and enjoy them. And I can't read, you know, a comic that looks beautiful, but the story sucks. So that's in my mind, the story is the kind of driver of these stories for my enjoyment personally it is certainly like mostly what we talk about here like if, I, if i'm looking back at an older book i may be more interested in the art over the story because i kind of know where the story goes but at least mm -hmm. for like the the x-men books right now so much of my enjoyment is about oh where is this going to go what's going to happen next and that's yeah. that's all you know I'm sure artists have some input on that, but that's mostly a writer. Yeah. Okay. So that was our resolutions. You have a bit of news this week. Uh, we had speculated a few weeks ago, or at least we we're kind of confused about what's going on with New Mutants because we didn't see any solicits coming up. And it is official. New Mutants has been canceled. Well, it's ended at least. Mar Marvel doesn't like to use the C word anymore. But however you put it, December's issue that came out a few weeks ago, number 33, is the final issue of New Mutants Volume 4. And 33 is a, a pretty high number for a current-day Marvel uh, series. Now, however, in accord with their recent habits, Marvel has already announced that they're giving Charlie Jane Anders, who was the writer of those final few issues, a five-issue miniseries called New Mutants Lethal Legion, which it seems will focus on some of the new characters that Anders introduced in those last couple issues. So that's good news and bad news, and I'll leave it up to each individual listener to decide which is which. Uh, and another bit of late breaking news, uh, our old buddy Chris Sheehan, my, my former co-host on this very program, who had been taking a bit of a break from, a, you know, comic books, media type things. Last night I saw he posted a brand new episode of his Essential X-Lapse podcast looking at X-Men Volume 1, number 46, which was published all the way back in 1968. Now, I haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast yet, but any new episode of X-Lapse is a very welcome development. And hey, listeners, I know some of you probably you listened to that already. Uh, and if those who haven't, you know, go check that out. That's on the Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill podcast feed. As soon as you're done listening to me and Ruben talk about these more current X-Men comics. Okay, I think that's all the news. Time to go out of the books? Yeah, definitely. And shout out to Chris. You know, we miss you, man. Good to hear that you're recording again. Fantastic. And I'll be listening to that podcast myself sometime this afternoon, probably while I'm doing my uh, supermarket shopping. But for now, we are heading on to X-Force number 36. Deep Cover. Written, of course, by Ben Percy, art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru Effects, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna, and design by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Uh, so yeah, shot. I, I said all those names. I hope that's a good thing. Okay, so before we get into this issue, we got to talk about the great big furry blue beast in the room, right? Because last issue, the very last it, panel of the last issue, we saw Beast being let off in handcuffs. He had set up this evil space prison where he experimented and, and murdered to death all these mutants and aliens, and then he was caught doing this by Domino and Omega Red, and finally this months and years long character arc from Beast was finally coming to a head. He was going to get his comeuppance. It was all going to happen. We were going to see how this was going to play out. And, and then, Ruben, what, 
what happened in this book? I can't exactly explain entirely what happens, but it seems like he almost just got a reprimand and no real penalty from anyone. And he's back in charge, sort of, except that the whole team now... I mean, unless this whole issue is his hallucination from inside the pit, I don't know yeah. how to explain it. <laughs> they just seem to be like, yeah, you, you committed war crimes, so we're going to kind of defer to Sage, but you know, you're still in charge. It's, it's a little weird. I don't get... I don't get it. Or maybe like it's pending the trial, so <laughs> it's it still proven guilty. It's I, I just don't understand how he's back. Here's here's my my uh, no prize of how this happened. I don't know if you can do a no prize about what actually happens in the Marvel offices. But yeah. I'm, I'm imagining Ben Percy walking down the hall of Marvel offices carrying all his papers about his plans, and then he goes around a corner and he bumps into somebody, and all those papers fly up in the air and get you know wafted down comedically. And when he picks them up, they're just not in the same order anymore. So all these stories and arcs were supposed to be in a different order because yeah. clearly when you got, got a guy let off in handcuffs, that has to happen after this. It doesn't make a damn bit of sense. I mean, yeah, some of his no, team I has mean, given the silent treatment. They yeah. only want to have Sage confirm his orders, but he's still in charge of X-Force. He's still walking around free, making his grumpy beast face, even though don't, we know no. him to be a, a mass murderer. Yeah, I think what happens is actually there's some kind of ramifications that'll take place in maybe the Wolverine story. Maybe. I mean, even even if Professor X and the Quiet Council said, yeah, we know he did these horrible things, but he did it for the good of Krakoa and he has skills we need. If that's yeah. what happened, we need to see that. Yeah. For the story to make sense, we need to have that happen on panel or at least give us, at the very, very least, some sort of a data page of, you know, Charles Xavier said, saying, I don't care. He's still, he's still running X-Force. I don't know. Well, if you look at like Legion of X, there was a reference to somebody comparing themselves to Beast and then being like, oh, well, that's not a great comparison right now. I, I kind of think that it's going to be well known. It's just we haven't gotten to that part of the story. And, and the whole idea of the pages getting out of order, it kind of makes me laugh because that's probably sort of accurate. It seems like he's just not telling the important part yeah, fast It enough. could have been that for whatever story reasons, they had to delay the comeuppance. And they say, oh, actually, sorry, sorry, Ben, you actually have to stretch this out another few months before we're going to have whatever event that they want this character climax to be in. Okay, so that's rant about Beast, at least for this month, at least for this week. Uh, so this book itself, that aside, is, is a pretty good X-Force story, right? We go back to Xeno. Uh, we, they're going to be infiltrating this Xeno front, which is uh, a restaurant in India. And so Domino puts on some makeup, and it's kind of funny to see her with her, you know, black and white face that looks like, you know, kiss makeup, but instead she's having more natural Caucasian skin tone makeup put on top of that. And uh, who, who is her makeup artist in this scene here? Deadpool. It is Deadpool. And Ben Percy writes it a pretty funny Deadpool, at least funnier than I've seen in a while. I was very surprised and actually thought, okay, this is kind of a good comedic team, right? It Omega is. Red, Great Man, and Deadpool cracking jokes. And you can just imagine Omega Red being irritated by <laughs> Wade the entire time. Yeah, Omega Red says very, very little in this issue. He makes one little kind of grunty noise in this scene, and later yes. on he gives us some exposition. But other than that, he's he's not really – he's here for the action stuff in this scene. Yeah, I, I like the, the joke where Deadpool talks about Omega Red having a 1980s high ponytail, yes. which is a thousand percent accurate. Which yes. I don't know what, what era you were in high school, but yes, I very much remember the 1980s era of high ponytails. And that is, is what uh, Mr. Omega Red is wearing. So 
Yeah, it wasn't in high school then, but but yeah, I remember seeing a lot of movies with that kind of stuff. I actually love the idea too. Silent and black and white when you were seeing uh, these movies. No, I was young enough that '80s was like the generation just before me. But born in the '80s, not living in high school in the '80s. But anyways, I actually also loved Omega Red, like being tasked with picking out you know designer clothing (laughs) (laughs) and not being, I guess, terrible at it. I can't really tell. You know, I'm not a high fashion guy, but I, I think the joke is supposed to be that he has he holds two outfits. One's kind of a fairly normalish, sedate, you know. Uh, unisex kind of a almost a a jacket and pants with a shirt like a blousey kind of shirt underneath and then his other hand he's got this completely ridiculous frilly pink gown that domino would never in a thousand years wear so i think that was a little bit of a visual joke oh oh, visual joke that's that's a point for me talking about robert gill's art there we go i really like his beast also he's kind of um he's kind of stocky in a way Mm -hmm. he looks uh beastly i guess he does and while, while we're on the art this is a real thing i really enjoy the backgrounds in this issue in every locale whether it's inside like right now they happen to be inside a truck we don't know they're inside a truck when we turn the page a couple of pages but we see the electronics and weapons inside the truck and on krakoa we see all the things going on inside the x-force skull headquarters and on the streets of bombay and inside the restaurant it really feels like it's taking place in actual physical spaces, where sometimes yeah. comic books just kind of put up a, a color gradient in the background and call it good. So I, I like that it feels located and grounded in that sense. All right. So moving forward with the plot, Domino, dressed up in her not a pink gown and with her, you know, more, let's call it typical human makeup on, goes to this restaurant called the Royal Shark. And again, this location is kind of cool because the inside of the restaurant seems completely wrapped in a giant fish tank that reminds me of the shark encounter at SeaWorld in Florida. You know, where just all around you, there's these huge, huge uh, fish swimming around. Pretty neat. Yeah, it's a cool looking restaurant. I would eat there for sure. It does seem that there's only two kinds of fish in these tanks, though. There are sharks (laughs) and there are goldfish. From your chuckles, I guess you noticed that too. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that's like sharks and shark food. Maybe that's maybe that's a metaphor you're supposed to pick up wrong. You know, only two kinds of people in this world, but there's not a whole lot of variety. But I, I guess I guess artist Robert Gill likes to draw goldfish. Yeah. And I I just realized I was gonna make a gill joke there, but I'm I'm too good for that, so we're just gonna pass over that in silence. You'd have to buy a lot of goldfish. <laughs> be, be getting eaten like perpetually, right? I think yeah, goldfish it is. I guess it, we, I know we. Uh, it's it's owned by uh, by Zeno, so I guess their their budget for such things. It's you know it's like the the Bond villain budget. They can spend whatever they need to make their evil headquarters evil enough. So inside this restaurant, it turns out that everyone in here is affiliated with Zeno. I don't know if they're customers. This really cool, actually. This little part. So you know, she's sitting at the table and she's waiting for her you know contact that she's going to meet to discuss this you know purchase of. Um, some sort of mutant tech, right? Because she's posing as a representative of like some unnamed affiliation of Asian countries that are worried about Krakoa's influence on you know global politics. And so she's like, where is this person? Where is this person? And then the waiter shows up, right? And starts talking to her. But then everyone who's sitting in the restaurant also starts talking. So like they're all in on it. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. It's almost culty that they're all very much hip to this uh, idea of, you know, using mutant technology to extend their lives and, you know, Look towards immortality. But I was like, it's pretty clever, right? That's how you get all your agents in the building when you're meeting with somebody. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of surprised me. So meanwhile, while Domino's doing a bang-up job inside the restaurant, 
Deadpool and Omega Red are just hanging out on a nearby roof, completely undisguised, in their bright red, hey, look at me, I'm a superhero outfits. And yeah. unsurprisingly, somebody spots them, and yeah. it is somebody from Zeno. And this is another little cool touch where a Zeno agent tosses an eyeball up onto the roof and uses it like a, like a remote camera periscope, which is a nice, gross Zeno thing to do. And yeah. then, you know, the, the attack is on, we get a, a fight on the roof. And it seems that one of those agents radios those, maybe there's only one agent, radios those findings down to the people inside the restaurant because suddenly everyone in that restaurant touches their ear like they're a Secret Service agent. And yeah, yeah a waiter throws water in Domino's face to wash off her makeup. I guess it was pretty cheap makeup to be washed <laughs> entirely off by just dumping water on it. I'm, yeah. Again, I'm not a, a big makeup guy myself, but I don't think that's how it works. But it's part of the story. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm fine with it. Miniatures back in the day, and it's really hard to paint something over black. Like the black would shine through really well. I mean, she has that problem on her face, right? So I'm like, it can't be that cheap, right? It's got to be <laughs> on there really thick, otherwise it would never work. But anyways, anyway, we it, this the the uh, the jig is up, uh, and it just turns into a big fight inside there. Domina uses her Krokoan gauntlet to blow up the fish tank. The water crashes down, which you know should probably crush everyone to death with water and shards of glass, but the sharks yeah. eat the bad guys, and uh, Domino, Deadpool, and Omega Red escape back to Krakoa with, like, a, a wolverine heart and the rapidly melting corpse of the Xeno guy from the roof. So that was a pretty pretty cool opening scene there. Nice action. Pretty gross, uh, you know, shark-eating people. And again, I think a lot of the Xeno people were supposed to see as just melting down even like the waiter guy, he looks really gross at being bitten by a shark, but I think it's also supposed to be him just turning into, you know, genetic tech. Yeah, because they talk about basically the, you know, this being sort of like the cyanide pill idea that if right. the Xeno are captured, they just kind of dissolve into biological slush. Okay, so from that big action opening set piece, we do some some cool character stuff and some callbacks to some really old plot points, which I always like. So back home, Domino goes to her house, leaving that, that skull headquarters that she's been in, and in her house, she finds a painting that someone's left for her, and that painting is a painting of her in the Xenotank way back in, like, X-Force, like, five, six kind of era, right? And this is a memory that she doesn't have. This is a memory that she had removed from her following that resurrection where she fought all those fake dominoes on a train. Yeah. And this was a, a big plot point at the time because as she died in Colossus's arms in X-Force number seven, she her, her final wish, her final request to him was she wanted to come back remembering everything. She didn't want anything edited out. Yep. And then at the start of X-Force number eight, she's back, but with those memories just snipped away, removed. And we don't really know who made that call. Was it Colossus thinking, oh, I, I know better, she doesn't want this? Was it something of you know Xavier and the Five saying she'll be a, a better weapon without them? I don't think it was ever made very clear. Do you have any, any thoughts on how that happened or if I'm missing something? No, it's been a mystery this whole time. But since all the bad stuff that happens is Beast's fault, that's where I'm going with this. It's got to be. <laughs> it certainly would be in his character. I mean, again, this is 29 issues ago. Yeah. So it's a, a cool thing to go back to. But yeah, I can definitely see Beast saying, yeah, she'll be a, a better weapon for us on X-Force if we just remove those inconvenient bits of her memory. Yeah. So maybe that'll come up again. It certainly seems to be coming forward. I mean, it's, I think Colossus is probably 
if I was, you know, putting Vegas odds on this, I would say Colossus either on his own or maybe at that point he was already being controlled by Chronicler and, uh, you know, was I don't know, working with Zeno or Mikhail Rasputin, that whole side of things. Maybe he was already being under control. So I, th- I still think it was Beast and I think it was this idea of, you know, if you have this horrible trauma, how are you really going to, you know, move without flinching the next time you're battling Zeno? You would think that she would be extra paranoid about getting captured again if she had the memories of the torture that she underwent. True, very, very possible. So Domino's curious where this came from herself, and she recognizes the painting style. And we really only know, well, I guess we know two painters in uh, in X Men now. The one who paints the truth. What's her name? Uh oh, <laughs> you didn't write that name I now because she, she's not in the yeah. Out of the issues, man. In, in Legion and X Men Red. Okay, sorry, that wasn't fair. Weaponless Zen. There we go. I got it. Weaponless Zen. Thank you. Excellent. Full credit. <laughs> uh, but she goes off to visit the other painter, who is Colossus. And so Colossus is off, you know, digging an irrigation canal there in the Savage Land so he can, can grow his drugs. And uh, he denies having anything to do with his painting and just sends her on her way. Like, oh, who, me? I don't, I don't know where it came from. And you'd think there'd be like security cameras or the biological equivalent there on Krakoa, you know, yeah. records of the gates. But, you know, that always happens when it's convenient for the plot and then it doesn't happen in other times. But let's not worry about that. Yeah, he just denies it. But as soon as she leaves, he starts acting a little weird. So what does he do next? Well, he's he's digging like a irrigation trench, which is bizarre. And he's thinking about his girlfriend that he murdered. <laughs> um, but then he starts punching himself. And I'm not sure exactly why. I guess he's sort of accusing himself of... He calls himself liar, spy, and traitor. And in his, you know, human fleshy form, he punches himself in the face, and then yeah. he turns into his metallic form and goes back to digging with a shovel that I don't think would be very effective for this kind of work, but, you know, he knows best. It's his farm. And then we get a a data page, and this data page is a page of the Chronicler's okay. story that's controlling or maybe not controlling exactly, but at least steering Colossus here. and. It talks about how Colossus killed his girlfriend, Kayla, which we did see on panel back in X-Force number 24, so again, like a dozen issues ago. And back then, she had found some of his paintings, ones that kind of gave away Krakoa's secrets. It seemed like he was painting things on Krakoa and shipping them off to Mikhail and Zeno. And when she, once she found that, Mikhail made Chronicler have Colossus kill her. Yeah. I guess no one from... Krakoa ever went to go check up on her. Oh, well. Yeah, that's a bit that's a little weird to me. It's like, really? He's on the council, right? <laughs> you think people would say, where's your girlfriend, right? Oh, she's she's uh, my girlfriend in, in Canada. Sure, that's where she is. Yeah. Uh, but in this uh, Chronicler page, we see that there's a section where instead of having Colossus kill Kayla, he confesses. He, he tells her everything. He tells her what's going on, tells her about Mikhail and everything else. But then that bit is crossed out in blood. I'm, I'm presuming this is Chronicler's blood, probably spilled by Mikhail. And actually, he's not talking. He was not talking. He's just the one he'd be talking to Domino. Yeah, this is the scene of Domino. Basically, I think the Chronicler wrote that he was going to confess and that it would be up. And then Mikhail, I guess, was looking over his shoulder, beat the crap out of him, lined out that part, and then put in basically that he doesn't say anything. Right. Basically puts in the part that we saw with him denying it all. So it's kind of neat here that Colossus is kind of on to something weird happening. And I, I know we haven't been covering New Mutants, 
But in fact, in issue 28, so a few months ago, uh, this was the last one written by Vida Ayala before uh, Charlie Jane Anders took over. There is a scene where Colossus admits to magic that he something's up with him. He has gaps in his memory, and he's finding himself kind of coming to in strange places and not knowing how he got there. Mm. So we're seeing that Colossus knows something's up, but I guess he can't actually. He's being prevented from from speaking up about it by the control that's making him feel so weird. So that's putting yeah. an interesting little twist on this long, long dangling plot thread. And Magic hasn't been investigating that. I guess she should. Uh, yeah, I it guess was just a quick needs. scene. Yeah. It was just like a three panel bit there where he kind of mentioned it to her. Yeah, she's been busy doing other stuff. I mean, she's. I'm right now. Excellent. She's all tied up with that whole uh, limbo invading New York City that's happening in, in Dark Web. So she's she's been busy. <laughs> Okay, so that's that cool character stuff. And I think that's my favorite part of this issue is is that Colossus Domino bit because I was always interested in that that storyline. It's good to see that it's not been dropped. But yeah. on to the very last kind of segment here, uh, I call it Operation Egg Drop. This is another plan from X Factor. We saw their first plan in the beginning talking about that restaurant in Bombay. Now they have a plan to kind of sort of kind of infiltrate Zeno. And the idea is we're going to take this this gold ball, this egg, and it's going to be a, a broken one. It's going to be called unfertilized. They very, very specifically say unfertilized. And number one, I don't want to think about how these eggs get fertilized. I just, I just don't. And number two, we see on panel that there's very clearly a full-size humanoid figure inside the egg. So yes. I don't know exactly what Beast means by fertilized. Maybe there's a miscommunication. Maybe the word means something else in terms of this weird magic-y thing that goes on, but it, it didn't seem to quite match up. Yeah. But the idea is that this is like a kind of a, a broken egg that Beast says can't possibly be used by anybody, but we're going to plant whatever the Krakoan equivalent of an Apple air tag in there is, and we're going to give this to that uh, auction house that we saw over in Wolverine, and we know that Zeno is going to buy it, and then we'll be able to track this to Zeno's hideout, which seems like a decent enough plan, right? It's, it's something that Beast yep. would come up with. Yep. And he says, don't worry, there's no way they could ever, ever actually use this egg to do anything, because for one thing, they need the help of, quote, a telepath of remarkable genius. And they don't have any of those, do they? Who do they have? I, I don't really know who this kid is, though. I, there's been references to some missing mutant child, but I don't know when he was kidnapped. And I have some speculation. So on the very, very final splash page, we see the, the man with a peacock tattoo and the mask, and he's holding the hand of a kid wearing a very cute little matching suit. Very nice. A uh, little red-haired kid, and the kid's you know pointing to his forehead in the international sim you know, symbol of, I'm a telepath, a remarkable genius. And yes. we see a bright pink-like energy blorp coming out of his head. Yeah. So, there's a couple possibilities here. Uh, back in X-Force number 26, that was in the uh, Wolverine and the Surfer Dudes little arc. Oh, uh, they kidnapped somebody. They kidnapped a kid from the Bower. Okay. And that's who I think this might be. And also, in this issue, that kid is mentioned on the early data page, that memo written by Dr. Cecilia Reyes. Mm -hmm. So, it's kind of weird that they mention him offhand uh, in this issue, is. unless he's yeah. relevant. So, it's got to be that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The other thing I'm thinking of is, you know, if I see a telepath with a bright pink energy blorp, I'm thinking Quentin Choir. Mm. And remember, Quentin was killed off by the hentai helmet back yes. when one of the Cerebro helmets went, went kerblooey. And yeah. we were also told that he wasn't just killed off, all his backups 
got deleted. deleted and yeah. I don't think they've mentioned whether he's in that little uh, Scarlet Witchy magic waiting room place. So as far as we know, he can't come back. And we know Kid Omega has to has to come back at some point. So yeah. maybe this kid is connected with that. Yeah, it's the color of, of Clinton Choir's hair, so that, that probably works for me. So my overall theory is, yes, this is that stolen kid from the Bower, but that stolen kid, here's the twist. Yeah, you ready? It's going to be some like kid of Quentin. He's the secret bastard son of Quentin Choir and Phoebe Cuckoo. Yeah. Yep. Which is not going to happen, but that's that's my fun little theory. No, I actually think that is going to happen, because <laughs> the Bower was all about you know, abandoned kids, right? That's true. But I mean, how would Phoebe hide her pregnancy from the other cuckoo? Uh, that's where the theory starts to break down. But yeah. that's my theory. So that's that's the issue. So the Beast storyline thing, rant and rave about that already. Going to put that aside. Other than that, I love these calling back to these dangler, dangling plot threads, the uh, the Colossus stuff, the Domino stuff, the, the missing kid, maybe the missing Quentin Choir. This could all be going somewhere great. I mean, we can hope. So I love to see that. This is the first X-Force issue that I've been actually intrigued by in a very long time. And there was a point in time when I thought this was one of the best four books that were in the X-Line. So kudos to Ben Percy. You're starting off the year strong. And this is the direction I want it to go, right? Like, I actually look forward to the next issue. So for me, this is solid eight. Um, And let's see where it goes. It feels way more robust, right? It doesn't seem like issue to issue. This feels... Like it's a connected story. Very true. Yeah. Again, with with the beast thing aside, I'm going to give this an 8.3 because I had a lot of fun talking and theorizing about it. If I wanted to really give this a score, I, I'd have to knock it back for this. Just the the insane out of order writing of beast. But other than that, 8.3 out of 10. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so we both like that book, and we both had some good things to say about the art. I. I didn't mention anything about the lettering. I'm probably not going to have things to say about the lettering. I, baby steps, right? Talk about the art and the colors first. Moving on to our second issue, our final issue that we're going to talk about this week. It's X-Men Red number 10, Endgame. Written by Al Ewing, art by Stefano Caselli and Jacopo, excuse me, and Jacopo Camagni. Now, I don't really know are there different... We have so like two pencilers. I don't know if it's two pencilers or penciler inker. If there's different scenes drawn by different people, I don't really know the deal. I didn't see a huge difference in style between scenes, so I'm not quite sure what's going on with the artist there. Yeah. But moving on to colors by Federico Blee, letters by Ariana Mayer, and design by Tom Muller. So when we left off with our X-Men Red Friends last time, Vulcan had just zoomed out of that diplomatic zone meeting where he had just thought he had killed Majestrix Xandra Neramani, but turned out that was just Sunspot in disguise, so he's looking for revenge. He thought he had tracked her to Magneto's Autumn Palace, but when he got there, it turned out, nope, it was Storm, ready and waiting to have a little bit of a rumble. Yes. And as usual, Al Ewing takes these multiple story threads and kind of goes back and forth between the scenes, and as usual, I'm not going to talk about it that way. It's a perfectly great way for him to tell the story, but for purpose of discussion, I'm going to I'm going to put things kind of more in in groups. So those three strands are, number one, we have Vulcan and Storm with their fight on Arako. Number two, we have Abigail Brand watching that fight from space on board the Sword Station 2, a.k.a. the Keep. And number three, we have Cable and friends doing their thing on the World Farm. Sound good? Okay, so number one, Vulcan and Storm fighting on Arako. And it's, it's a pretty cool battle. I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than, you know, we're not going to do the he does this, she does that, the punch back and forth. But overall, Vulcan is, is talking a lot of crap here, right? 
He's very yeah. much in his King Vulcan mode. He only has one facial expression, but I'm not <laughs> going to complain about that because I think this Vulcan would only have that one facial expression. I think that's completely in character. He's like, I'm the tough guy. I'm going to beat you. Uh, and Storm remaining completely unfaith. So she, he's just releasing tons of energy, just vaporizes the Autumn Palace to like constituent molecules. You know, yes. he's not going to, I don't know what the, the real estate market is like on Arako, but uh, Magneto, if he comes back, is not getting his, his deposit back. It's gone. But yeah. again, Storm is fine. And I'm going to be critical of this. This is the part I, I like least of this issue. And I think I needed it explained to me a little bit better what these characters were doing, what their powers were, and how Storm was surviving this. Yeah. I understand I understand the idea of her being an Omega and him being an Omega. I really hate the idea of like, oh, you just match two Omegas together and they can neutralize each other. I'm like, no, it doesn't work. There should right? be some I'm more details. We see some like snow and ice effects around her. Like she's using her weather powers to create like maybe a protective colder bubble around herself. But again, that's us kind of writing things into it that we don't actually see on panel. I, I would like to see more about that. Some people love Storm as like the ultimate badass, right? And I, I have enjoyed her beating people on Arako, but in each case, it was like explained to me how she accomplished that, right? I don't understand how a guy who has unending control over energy is unable to stop somebody who just can control the weather. Yeah, I mean, he, he could blow up the whole planet if he wanted to, right? Yes, yes. And what is she doing, right? Like, electricity is energy, right? So that, that should not work. Raining on him should not do anything, right? Oh, I'm going to get to that, yeah. It's water, right? He's not a fire guy. He's an energy guy. So that bugs me. Mm -hmm. And then there have been other times where she's used her powers more cleverly, right? Like shutting off oxygen and things like that. I just needed something to explain to me, like, how is she defending against Vulcan? Very much agree, yeah. So... It seems like Vulcan kind of wears himself out, maybe, by doing so much offense that has no yes. effect on her. He, I mean, that's what they try to say. She mentions Rope-A-Dope, which is the Muhammad Ali reference, right? From the George yeah. Foreman Rumble in the Jungle. The yeah. idea that you let your opponent, you know, spend all their energy punching at you, and you, you know, absorb the blows, and then when they're all worn out, then you strike back. But again, we didn't really see that on panel. What we see is that she calls forth a downpour of water that puts out Vulcan's fire, but it just looks like a little bit of rain. It's like, she, and also, she oh, she's using ice to resist him, right? Like, okay, take some ice and throw it into the sun, right? It's not going to survive. Like, this guy is unlimited energy power, right? I don't, I'm sorry, your ice is not going to protect you now, from that. There is a clever bit here where the idea is that after all that fire and heat, there shouldn't be any water around, right? It should be 0.000% yes. humidity. Uh, yeah. But it turns out she has some secret teammates backing her up. She yes. has Wrong Slide formed an underground chamber out of the rock. Sobinar filled the chamber with ocean. I mean, Sobinar made all the oceans on Mars back during that whole terraforming thing during the Hellfire Gala, so that checks out. And Lotus Logos shielded that chamber with a Mysterium, which I presume is what protects it from Vulcan's fire boiling it away. So that's why she can make some rain fall on Vulcan. Yes. And I don't know why a bit of rain completely and utterly defeats the Omega level King Vulcan. But that's what's shown on panel. He has he has no response to this. He's yes. he's kinda he's kinda <laughs> soggy and he's defeated. Never come to Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> because that's he would funny. be completely defenseless here. I would be able to beat Vulcan. <laughs> Omega level Ruben. There we go. 
Okay. Yeah, Anyways, so, yeah. yeah, the battle sucks. I mean, it looks cool. It looks very cool. And and I did like the teamwork, right? That part's cool. Which but, is a big plot point. Yeah, and I and you know, it's a it's a development, right? The the council of Araco is is learning that teamwork is not weakness. So that's pretty badass, right? Like those are all good it is, points. And exactly but, what counts as okay and not okay teamwork on Araka was still really hazy, but yeah. we're definitely supposed to think that, yeah, this is kind of a breakthrough in their culture. The uh, last thing I'll say about this fight that's a little weird to me is the Lotus Logos, you know, contribution, where he's kind of like manipulating the Mysterium. Because at the end, basically, you know, he gets tired out, like you said, and then this mysterious Mysterium, I guess, sarcophagus goes around him, and lotus logos is kind of manipulating it it's like he's sort of become magneto except i thought he spoke poetry that created metal right so yeah i I don't exactly know what's going on there right like is he now able to control metal and shape it into these weird shapes it's a different never seen power than we've seen it is true it's it's very convenient and has to i think a lot of things have to happen in this issue especially since this is the final issue before sins of sinister so Ewing has to wrap everything up. So I think we had some shortcuts there, and, and Lotus Logos is part of those shortcuts. And, and one final thing. So he speak, or I guess Wrong Slide forms the Rock Chamber. Did he make the Mysterium? Or did Lotus Logos make it? Lotus Logos made the Mysterium. If so, this stuff was like super rare, right? So I guess he's now the richest guy in the oh, universe. Oh, that is going to completely screw up the whole economy, isn't it? Yeah, just because make- we were told back in Sword, like number one, way way back when Al Ewing first got into this this X Men universe, that it was a whole thing to get Mysterium. You had to go and fold space and go to these beyond the most beyond reaches of space to bring back Mysterium. And now Lotus Logos can just say, "Here you go." Yeah, it just makes <laughs> sense. That just he just crashed the galactic economy. <laughs> oh no! It, it's like if, if we suddenly had a, a completely cheap and clean form of energy. And Saudi Arabia is going to go, oh, shit. You know, yeah. it's, it's, some, it's the, no, something not good. Okay. Well, so I wonder if we'll ever see anything about that. Probably not. No, we will not. But Oh, well. Yeah. This fight, I think, again, like I said, I thought it looks cool, but it ultimately mm-hmm. falls very short. Yeah, I, I think you make some good points. Now, at the end of that part of the story, Sobinar does acknowledge the need for, like, these new tactics, you know, called help and, you know, cooperation <laughs> and things. And he says, and this is, I'm sure this is on purpose must embrace these changes, quote, in the name of brotherhood, yeah. which is going to be foreshadowing because for the next few months during Sins of Sinister, X-Men Red is going to be replaced by a book called Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants. So there we go, foreshadowing. So that's that's our battle strand of the story, which kind of cool, but has has some holes in it that the two of us kind of poked up pretty thoroughly. Yeah. I, I will say one thing, though, again, we've we've applauded them on this in the past, but again, I actually read this and I was like, okay, yeah, there's Sobinar, there's Lotus Logos, and there's Wrong Slide. And the fact that I actually know those characters now and recognize them and know their names, that's, you know, kudos to Ewing for having that's us true. care about He's taken kind of some of these kind of archetypes, these very Hickman-y, you know, cosmic or, you know, archetypes is a good word for it, that aren't really characters, and he's made them into characters. So that's that's a real... Boy, I can't talk very good today. I shouldn't be writing. That's that's a that's a real success for Al Ewing here. Yeah. Okay. Strand two. Abigail Brand on the space station, and so she's looking on. She has. It looks like she's watching, you know, Street Fighter two here on her big screen. We don't know where her cameras are, but she's Abigail Brand. She has cameras everywhere. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's kind of confused because her scans had told her the Autumn Palace was empty, and she kind of very quickly and conveniently comes to the conclusion that the scanners are fine. Someone has messed with her psychically, 
and her hired goon there. And is this pronounced Mentalo or Mentalo? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm going with Mentalo because yeah. Doom Patrol has has uh, a Mentalo, so I'm going to make this yeah. guy Mentalo. So yeah, Mentalo. like Magneto, where I, I called him Magneto forever, and I'm sure we're getting this wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to stick with Mentalo, though, just so we can be consistent. Okay, Mentalo. His job is to kind of look out for that kind of thing and protect her against that. And Brand, again, very quickly and conveniently comes to the conclusion that Mentalo didn't just fail because he is, you know, canonically kind of crappy at the whole mental stuff, uh, kind of low level. He says, you, you didn't just fail. You've been bought and is actively working against me. Now, who could have more resources than the lady who inherited the resources of S.H.I.E.L.D. after that whole organization broke up? And, and who could it be? But again, very quickly and conveniently, she comes to the conclusion, Roberto da Costa, Sunspot. And again, I, get, I think this is, again, a lot of things that Ewing has to get done this issue because this happens in page and a half. She comes to these conclusions and Sunspot shows up. Uh, he and Xandra and Deathbird, and they've been teleported there by uh, Scissor of the Smoke, who is that Iraqi mutant with the Nightcrawler kind of bamfing powers. So now they're all in the same place. Xandra officially accuses Brand of all sorts of bad stuff, like trying to start an interstellar war for her own purposes. And before Brand can be arrested, she uses some tech she stole from Kid Cable to, quote, body slide by one to a place that we readers are told is somewhere very secret. I hate that. Hey, come on, either, either tell us where it is or don't tell us, but yeah. don't have a caption box be, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. That's kind of cheesy. Especially if the Fisher King found, found yeah, it. Yeah, so right? tell us what's going on here now. What do you think? He is always going hangs on? out in the very secret places. Um, I don't know. I mean, he can't be the father, can he? Do you think they have a relationship? I mean, he does. Basically, so anyways, I should say what happened. So she teleports into this very secret place and Fisher King is in there and she's like trying to figure out like what the hell happened. What's my next move? And Fisher King names her. So we've never known her name, right? We learned recently that Brand is not her actual last name. It's a code name because of her power of having like burning hands. And her name is what? Abigail Thanriagulax. And this is why I wanted you to talk about the scene, because I didn't want to yeah, say. He totally set me up as soon as I started that. I was like, oh my God. Oh, I'm, I'm just going to take a break to pour myself some tea. Why don't you take the scene, Ruben? I'll, I'll give it a shot. And you, yes. know, you know she's in trouble when she gets called by her full name. We all know yeah. that feeling. Abigail Thanriagulax. Okay. Yeah. And he then, tra- I think he then translates it. He says, he says that. And then he calls her Abigail, born as Axis ended. Now, Axis is the planet that we're told Brand was born and raised on with an alien dad and a human mother, well, a mutant mother, but like an earthly human yes. mutant mother. And we don't know much about that. So I don't know if Axis blew up like Krypton or what. But I guess We've that's seen her part brother, of the Not in this series, but we saw it in like the very old sword miniseries. And he right, looks right, right. a lot like Beast. And basically, they've said, you know, she she must have been raised by a lot of them, right? Like, been around the brother and the father for a I suppose so, but I mean, that whole, makes the whole relationship with Beast because he looks like her brother thing kind of... Well, creepy. it's intentional. I mean, they basically... That was why they had a relationship, because she's like, yeah, you look like... <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> intentional, mean, but I yes. don't like it. <laughs> it's like one of those manga that I don't like to read. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so, and then Fisher King goes on to very calmly and quietly tell Brand that she has shown herself to be a, quote, enemy of Arako. And that's, that's not a good thing to be known as. 
and enemies only get, quote, destruction of all that you are. And at the end of that road is what comes next. Again, kind of portentous slash pretentious, very much pointing at a change to this book. Uh, what does it mean? I don't know, but things are not looking good for Ms. Abigail Brand Than Reagriaxis. And that's where we leave her. You know, I actually was happy to see that because I think I've not been secretive of like really loving Brand. And I was fine with her being a villain, but I don't want her just to be a discarded villain. So if there's an idea that like this is the start of a path back to redemption where she can be, maybe she can join X-Force, right? Once Beast gets thrown away, she can head off that organization. We've been making these parallels between her and Beast, where Beast is acting on like a planetary level. She's acting on a galactic level. Yeah. And it's her her storyline is actually moving forward at a reasonable pace. You know, it's got an arc to it. It's not just a, a wiggly line. Yeah. So I'm curious to see what does happen with her now. So that's going to be pretty cool. And arguably, I mean, with her, yes, I know a lot of people think she's a traitor and a villain and everything, but I understand her agenda more than I understand Beast, right? Like she seems to have regret for some of the stuff she does, but she seems to also say like, this is what's necessary, right? She's also acting on her evil is happening on a grand scale. She wanted to create a galactic war. So I don't know how many people that would kill off, but it's going to be way more than Beast had in his awful prison. So again, doesn't make either of it good, but just on a you know couple powers of 10 bigger evil for her. Yeah. But she's going to get what she has coming to her, it seems, and that could be fun to watch. So the final strand of our story, Cable and Friends on the World Farm. And we pick up here right at the very moment where we left off where those progenitors, once again, no relation, uh, have psychically dissected Manifold to investigate his power, right? We see like his chest is opened up in a very geometrical, mathematical, multidimensional kind of way. And they're really enamored of the power they find in him. And there's this kind of creepy conversation where they talk about, oh, maybe we'll let that power loose from its cage. The implication seems to be that if Manifold can speak to space, then if the progenitors reduce that speech to gibberish, then maybe space itself comes undone. Again, very big, high-concept stuff, very creepy. Yeah, and also what's interesting to me is this, you know, we it's been unclear, like, what is Orbis's relationship to the progenitors, and at least what I've always thought of them as, like, not really subservient to Orbis, this really sort of shows that that is almost consistent with what's going on here, right? Like, absolutely. Their agenda might actually just be to destroy the universe, because they're evil. <laughs> yeah, they, they're currently, they, they do some jobs for Orbis, Delars, and other people, but they don't, like, work for him, work for him, right? Yeah. He is scared of them. Yes. And they look creepy as hell, so I'd be scared of them, too. <laughs> yeah, these are very Hickman-y characters, which is kind of fun to see the Hickman-y characters here in this, this viewing book. Uh, and yeah, while Manifold is kind of simmering away under the attention of the progenitors, Cable uses his TK powers to call out that sample of techno-organic virus, which is what they tracked to this place to begin with. That's how they could get here. And he uses this additional virus load to create this massive, stereotypical 1990s slash Tron armor, and of course, a really, really big gun. And then he says this line, let's crack open that shell and talk, Orbis Delaris, man to man, and quite literally face to face. Now that is an odd little way to phrase that, and I did a little, little digging here, and you know, I found some other people have done some digging too, so I'm not claiming this is purely original research, but that's a direct quote from X-Force Volume 1, Number 16, cover date November 1992, 
written by your friend and mine, Fabian Nessaiza. And that was in part four of a crossover storyline called The Executioner's Song. So a pretty famous storyline. And in that instance, Cable was kind of by himself. He wasn't talking to somebody. He was just kind of, you know, expositing. But I think he was talking about strife at that point. And also this image here of Cable getting all armored up in that virus is very clearly inspired by the art in that issue, which uh, was drawn by Greg Capullo. It's very Liefeld-esque. It looks like a Liefeld drawing, even though yeah, we were tiny talking about feet. this, and I actually thought it was just a Liefeld. But it's, it's Greg Capullo. So, yeah, I'm going to, when uh, Jim posts this or tweets this, I'm going to try to remember to attach this image, the two images, just to show uh, how they match up. It's kind of cool. And speaking, speaking of that, though, and it's almost too bad it wasn't a Lee Field thing because, like the, the original art, because you see the feet are covered by the smoke. They are. That is very funny. Like, is that almost a? It's got to be a joke, right? Like it's got to be a, intentional. A intentional joke that. by our artists Stefano Caselli and Jacopo yeah. Camani. I don't know which one drew this. Again, I'm not sure how that uh, the two artists split things up on this, but it's, it's pretty funny. But I, I high five them for that. That's actually really clever, and it looks cool. So double it high does. five. Okay, so uh, oh, and also, if I if you Google those words, Al Ewing also used that same line about the quite literally face to face in an interview. I think it was with with Adventures in Poor Taste or one of those other comic book sites. He used that line in a completely different context without making it clear he was quoting anybody. So I, I think it just got to be like one of his favorite lines from like when he was a kid or something. So he's probably very pleased with himself for getting it into an X Men book. <laughs> okay, so. Digging through old comic books history aside, here in this issue, the armored-up, virus-up Cable punches Orbis Stellaris right in his giant geodesic gold ball. And this gets the attention of those no-relation progenitors, uh, so they turn their kind of magical space hoodoo on old Nathan Summers, which frees Manifold up, use his talk-to-space powers to put those progenitors outside, all the way outside. Now, what the hell do you think that means? I think he just sent them back to their dimension because they, they they are from some place that's outside of the 616. Yeah, this feels kind of like a easy, unceremonious way to deal with this you know big cosmic threat. He just kind of makes them remind me of that old Twilight Zone episode with a boy who could send people into the cornfield. Yeah. You ever seen that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was, that was actually that, that kid, by the way, was played by Bill Mooney, who would go on to be famous as Will Robinson lost in space. Little, little Twilight and trivia for anyway. Is this so, where everyone was like terrified of him, like his parents. Yes. Never, okay, so I have seen that. Yeah. It would be a, it would be a good thing if you did this. Yes, that was a good thing because they're so yeah, scared yeah. to be sent into the cornfield, which just meant you know outside all the way outside. Yeah. So anyway, these these uh, bozos are just gone. I kind of kind of sad to see them go out so quickly and easily. But I kind of thought they were just put away for the future. I hope they come back because they're pretty cool. Yeah. So with that threat gone, with what Cable just said about the literally face-to-face, you'd expect Cable would crack open that Orbis Stellaris shell and yeah. have that face-to-face, right? Yeah. Nope. They all just pack up and leave. They rescue Wizkid, who was, you know, he was in the spaceship being chased by some, some Voltron robots, but they rescue him. They leave the spaceship to be blown up, but that's the end of, of this little strand of things. So some cool stuff, but... I can tell that uh, Al Ewing's in a bit of a rush to get to the next thing here. Yeah. Well, they make a reference in the data page that says something like Weaponless Zen drew a picture of the ball. Yes. Or the truth of the ball. So maybe they didn't need to open it because they saw. Well, all the more you think you would do something because in 
I guess what we're going to call like a post-credits type scene that we, the readers, finally get to look inside of that, that golden ball. And it's this elderly, long-haired, bearded man with the symbol of a spade on his forehead. So in, in case we didn't get it, he very helpfully talks to himself and identifies himself as Nathan Essex. So yes, that speculation that I thought was mostly wrong turns out to be correct. Orbis Stellaris is absolutely one of those other Essex clones. So the diamond? I'm, I'm sure that the actual idea, because you're the one that gave me the idea that this could be the outcome, mm-hmm. uh, came from somewhere else. But I was pretty proud of myself for identifying the dialogue about him murdering everybody in a violent fashion, being indic- indicative of Sinister. That was correct. It was well done. You get full credit. So yeah. the diamond Essex is Mr. Sinister. Club is Dr. Stasis. The spade is Orbis Thalaris. The only one so far unrevealed is the heart. Now, the only speculation I've really seen is Mother Righteous. Yeah, I still struggle with that. I really struggle with that. I don't, being. I don't think that's going to work. Number one, she's not wearing a mask, right? We've seen that all these Essexes look like, they look the same, they just wear masks to hide or hide inside a giant ball, right? Where Mother Righteous isn't wearing a mask, and also her name doesn't seem to fit the pattern, right? Sinister, Stasis, Thalaris. I think there's another S name's got to come up. Yeah, and I and there was. Um, oh yeah, interesting. I didn't think of the alliteration piece, but um, I, they also made a big deal about Mother Righteous being a totally new character, and you know some of the press about it was supposed to be this mm-hmm. exciting new character they've introduced, and it would be weird to say like, here's this new exciting character. Oh, by the way, she's just a now. Clone. Now that I mention the mask thing, we have spoken in this very episode about another character who wears a mask. That would be the man with the peacock tattoo. Mm, it doesn't feel like it would be, but I mean, just as far as a character who could take off a mask and go, aha. Yeah, and he has been doing genetics. He yep. has the skills. It would fit, but that would have been playing a real long game because he was introduced a lo- He was introduced before Al Ewing even ended up with these books, right? Yeah, so either that turns out to be, well, a retcon where maybe it was a Ben Percy character, yeah. Maybe a, a Percy character who maybe Percy had no plan for him because, you know, writers do that. Or maybe he had a different plan against retcon to be a sinister. That's that's a possibility. I kind of have a feeling that the heart one is unrevealed and we'll we'll find out who they are in the Sins of Sinister. It, it could be. They might so, not be introduced until Sins of Sinister. So I'm going to be definitely looking around in that series once it kicks off to see, like, are there any characters that might fit the bill. Okay, I think we've kicked this issue around probably enough. We've poked it all the little bits, liked a lot of it, found parts of it kind of rushed and convenient, uh, talked about some of the art, any other art things we need to bring up. I think I've run out of art things to say about it. Uh, I'm going to give this 7.5 out of 10. Good stuff, but with some nitpicks. Yeah, I'm a little higher, 7.8, but in the same ballpark. I, I always enjoy Ewing's efforts. He seems to be trying to tell a very large story with, you know, multi-level elements connecting. And this this book does do a lot of that, right? Tying up storylines and kind of seeding future storylines. And I appreciate the, you know, quite literally face-to-face reference. Once you showed it to me, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, right? Like a callback to the former series and the that art. Is fun. Yeah, I get it. I, I wish he had actually followed up and had him see the guy face-to-face after saying it right out there so much in black and white, but oh well. It, it, it's it, they wanted to save it for that last page reveal for us. Yeah, the Omega versus Omega fight was very poor, and I felt like he. It just definitely felt like I got to rush to get this over with. When he's had so many other good fights where it like totally made sense, right? And he had cool 
you know, ways like when he had, um, oh my gosh, uh, damn it, I'm doing it. The, the, fight, <laughs> the, the fights that took place in the, fight the, arena. Sunspot, the, the fight with Sunspot and the can't lose woman, whatever her name was. I thought that was pretty cool. Yes. Very challenged. Yeah, all, all those uh, arena fights for the, uh, the challenge to be on the Iraqi console, those were very cool. And those were more clever and more satisfying than, yes. oh, I saved some water you didn't know about, and now you're wet, which means I win. <laughs> Again, if, if, if it was, oh, he's completely punched himself out and he's out of energy now, they need yeah. to get that across better. Well, and I looked up Mysterium. Last thing I said about this, I looked up Mysterium, like, what is its properties? One of it is, like, like perfect energy absorption, conductivity stuff. So that part works. I, I, if they had just, like, wrapped him up in that, that would have been better. Like, I didn't need to see the water part. I think the water part is what screws it up for me. Yeah, but you had to have Storm do the real final blow. Just Lots of rain for character kind of reasons. Okay, so that's that's we've we've beaten that one to death. Moving on, let's think about next week. Next week we have Legion of X number nine, uh, where that's going to be, I guess, the final issue of of these books before we go into Sins or Sinister, because Legion and Red and Immortal. All are going to be leading into that Sins of Sinister crossover. So, Legion of X number nine, if the cover is to be believed, Nightcrawler starts to look even stranger. So, we have that to look forward to. X-Men number 18, it seems that Sink and Laura have some catching up to do because now we have that second Laura who did survive all those years in the vault. And that, that'll be kind of fun to see. I don't know if it'll be completely a character issue. I don't know what other threat or fight we're going to have, but. Looking forward to seeing the characters. I am very much looking forward to it. Yep. And finally, Wolverine number 29. Is he still in the pit? Is Beast in the pit? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. <laughs> and we will talk about all of that next week. So everybody, please you know, look us up on the Twitters. Uh, find us on Patreon if you want to have some fun chatting with us in the uh, Weird Science Slack, where mostly I've been using to make just awful, awful jokes. But uh, don't let that keep you away. And if you have other books you'd like us to talk about, if you think that we're, you know, giving somebody uh, not enough credit or possibly too much credit, or if you think there's some more art comments that you want us to talk about or think we're talking about too much, you know, yell at us on Twitter or by email. And hey, we'll see you next time. Bye bye.